just wanted to thank uh, you all for watching this particular video. Uh, we're specifically going to address the subject of the violence that has taken place this past week. I hope that you will be blessed uh, by the sharing of my own experience inside of this and a challenge that I'm going to offer at the very end. And it's a challenge that I hope you will take up. God bless. Today, as we finish up our final teaching on God's top ten, which is the Ten Commandments, uh, and also think together about the tragedies that we have witnessed over the course of this past week. First time guests, we're so happy to have you. Yes. You must not covet your neighbor's house. You must not covet, shall covet your neighbor's wife, male or female servant, ox or donkey, or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. Shout neighbor. And then James read, writes this, starts off with a question. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Everybody shout amen. amen. Please be seated. God, we ask that you'd work a miracle today, a series of miracles, as we listen and engage together in Jesus' name. Amen. When we ask the question, what is a disciple? A disciple, a follower of Jesus. Essentially, the answer is, a disciple is the person who has committed their life so that every day they will become more and more like Jesus. More and more like Jesus in our character. More and more like Jesus in our personal and private conduct. And more and more like Jesus in how we care for others. Especially others who are different from us. Or others with whom we adamantly disagree. Can we love across divides? So... Being a follower of Jesus Christ begins with the heart. Everybody shout heart. It begins with your heart. And so it is with the 10th commandment. What's unique about the 10th commandment from the last uh, five, uh, it's in a group of the six that's focused on relationship. And what's unique about the 10th commandment is that it is all about the heart. It's not... It's not something you can enforce with a law. I can, I can prove you, find you guilty of murder. I can find you guilty of committing adultery. I can perhaps prove that you have told a lie. I can demonstrate that you've not honored your parents. But I can't arrest you for coveting. That's a heart issue. It's all about the heart. Now, it's relevant today because as we think about the events that have taken place over the course of the last week, as we think about the shooting and the killing of Mr. Alton in Baton Rouge and the shooting and killing of Mr. Castillo in Minnesota, the shooting and killing of the five police officers in Dallas. I'm sure you're like me and you've had your heart broken as so many people across race and class all across this nation. But it is also true that these events, I believe, have also challenged and caused us, if you will, to examine our heart. It has tested our hearts. Now, heart is a big thing, right? Because Proverbs 4 says that we should guard our heart very closely because everything else that shapes life comes out of our hearts. So this is the point of James, right? James says something unique about coveting and the heart and a community like this. In the Exodus test chapter Relationship is symbolized by the word neighbor. Everybody say neighbor. neighbor. 
And in the New Testament text, in James, relationship is symbolized in the fact that he's writing to a group of believers very much like ours. It's a diverse community. It's rich and it's poor and it's different groups and ethnicities. He's writing to them. And the question he starts off with is insightful. Here's the question. He essentially says, what's the reason for your fights and your, and your, and your quarrels? Well, here's what I think is insightful. I love this congregation, and one of the things I love about this congregation, among many, is our diversity. I mean, we brag about the diversity that fills these pews. And yet the fact is, and it's important, we worship together, we sing about how, we, how amazing God is, and we pray together. We're from different ethnicities and political perspectives. That is awesome. It's miraculous that we're here. But... To be a, a mature follower of Jesus, it means we've got to get beyond the surface and have enough courage to get inside of each other's story about some of these tough issues, like race. Otherwise, it's just too easy to come sit on the same pew with one another and exit and really never have to love each other across differences. Now, if I asked you, were not your heart broken over what you read and heard and experienced this week, we would all unite to say yes. But if I started to ask you to drill down, what is your opinion, what is your perspective on the shooting of Mr. Alton, what is your perspective on the shooting of Mr. Castell, what is your perspective uh, on the shooting of the five police officers in Dallas, that's where the differences would come up, the, 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 the fights and, the, and, the, and, the, and the, the challenges that lie beneath the surface. And I dare say if I give us enough time to start talking about it, we would move from sitting on the same pew with each other to shouting in the air opposite each other. Because we have different perspectives. I think this is a unique opportunity because God has put us together and I think he can use us to impact what we've seen. So here's what I want to do. I want to start a conversation. I want to model it. And because I believe you love me, you trust me, I have credibility with you, I'm going to be vulnerable today and I want to talk about what it's like to be a black man in America. Dealing with the issues of race every day. I just want to share my story. And I think that I have enough trust and a love from you that I can do that. Am I right about that? All right. All right. Now, before I share that, let me share another story. It's about me. It's a funny story. It's a true story. I was in Boston. And uh, my niece had come to visit me from California. It was a cold, frigid evening. I drove a little Toyota, Rhonda, we'd leased a Lexus uh, RX for her, 330, to make sure that she was always safe in the snow and the cold. Because my niece had come and visited, I wanted to show her a good time, I borrowed Rhonda's car and we went to the shopping mall. And when we got into the parking lot, I said to her, I said, you stay here, it's cold, no need to get out, I'm going to leave the car running so the car stays hot, lights on, I'll be right back. I exit the car, go to the store, get the few little things I need to get. And when I come out of the store, I guess I got just a little uh, disorientated. Because I saw a car, a Lexus RX 330, same color, right there. And the motor was running and the lights was on. I just knew it was my car, so I just ran through the frigid cold, and I opened the door, and I slammed in, only to find a white man sitting in the passenger seat, and he went, ah! And I went, ah! That's a true story. And I was like, what are you doing here? And I noticed my wife had like the 
you know, the beginning models, there was no GPS in her, her car, but in this car, this is the top of the line, there's a GPS. And I realized I'd gotten in the wrong <laughs> car. Yes, this is your pastor. <laughs> now, I want you to keep that story, because I would come back to that story. It's critical. We're going to use it just a moment. A lot of insight there. The other day, Thursday, I was at Mount Hermon. And Thursday night, me and my wife, we had the kids there on vacation. I opened my computer and I learned about both the Baton Rouge shooting, Mr. Alton, and the Minnesota shooting, Mr. Castell, all at the same time. The next morning, I uh, awakened before anyone else did. And while I was lying there in the bed, I found myself running through my mind, preparing for the scenario. See, I live in Palo Alto. And I was thinking about what would happen if I'm walking through the streets of Palo Alto and I'm engaged by the police because of mistaken identity. I'm trying to figure out in my mind, how would I de-escalate the situation? Now, if you're not an African-American or maybe a Latino-American, this sounds really far-fetched for you. It's like, why are you doing that? Let me just share with you my perspective. What shapes that experience? Why is it that I would wake up working that through my mind? A number of years ago when I was in seminary, I was going to the seminary at San Francisco Theological Seminary in Marin County, but Rhonda and I was attending church in the Western Edition uh, section of San Francisco. Rhonda grew up there in 1249 Scott Street, and her stepfather pastored a church about three blocks down from her house. On that particular Sunday, I had preached at New Liberation Presbyterian Church, which is where we were at, and we went back about four blocks past 1249 into this little neighborhood to let off a couple of folk from the church. We stopped there and talked to them as they got out of the car for a little bit. We turned around and we came back, drove into the parking lot of 1249 Scott Street, which is where Rhonda's parents live. I run in the car and I had Jonathan, who was not quite one year old, one year in, in the child seat in the back. And as I pulled up, three police cars pulled in behind one pulled in behind me the other two blocked and the next thing we knew the policemen had gotten out of their cars and they were coming up on both sides of the car with their guns drawn it was a frightening moment for me and my wife sitting with my 10 year old 11 month baby in the back we went through all that you go through in terms of dialogue to try to figure it out and finally they concluded that it was mistaken identity that they had been trying to do a drug bust or whatever and they had was watching this person and somehow they concluded that I was the person. That's my experience. Well, let's fast forward. A number of years later, I'm pastoring a church in Roxbury, uh, Boston, and the church is Roxbury Presbyterian Church. And uh, this story is actually captured in the Boston Globe. So I'm going to read it out of the Boston Globe, a section of it out of the Boston Globe. And I'll, I'll give you the, the quick context of it. Frigid cold again in Boston. And, uh, you know, back then, you know, you're a preacher in Boston, you dress. And I knew how to dress. <laughs> but I didn't have any gloves. So I got somebody to drive me down to, to Franklin Street where Filene Basement is and Woolworth was. And dropped me off because you couldn't park. I ran into the Woolworth store. Purchased a pair of leather gloves that I got on sale for less than $15 at Woolworth. Came back up to the uh, counter. Put my gloves there. Opened my wallet, which was one of those long wallets. You could see this kind of stretch of cards and things I had in there. Pulled out a card. 
Gave it to the woman. The woman said, wait. She took my cart back in the back somewhere. And maybe seven, eight, ten minutes later, she comes back. She puts through the sail. I say goodbye. I go jump in the car that's waiting for me. And I go back to the office. Here's where the Boston Globe picks up the story. About an hour later, he said, talking about me, that his wife, talking about Rhonda, called him at his office to inquire whether he had misplaced his credit cards. No, why? He wondered. As the Hamiltons recounted it, Rhonda Hamilton related to her husband that the credit card company had just phoned to say it was investigating whether one of his charges had been misused after being notified by Woolworth that a suspicious-looking character... Come on, everybody say suspicious-looking character. (laughs) With a number of credit cards, had employed one at the store before getting into a waiting vehicle. As it turns out, Hamilton said, the suspicious-looking character was he... Reverend Herman Hamilton, the 30-year-old, wow, that's a long time ago. Anyway, 30-year-old pastor Roxbury Presbyterian Church and the eyebrow-raising get-up he wore that day, Reverend Hamilton said, was a black overcoat, gray double-breasted suit, white cotton shirt, silk paisley tie, and black tessel loafers. The only conclusion he could draw from the incident, he said, was that the transaction was questioned because he was black. Staking identity. Now, and then there's my son. The next day on Friday, after I got up, turned on my computer, I went to Facebook and my son had posted an article. Here's here's the article, here's the post, excuse me, not an article, here's the post that he wrote uh, on Facebook. I think his pictures, see, the cute girl he's with is my wife, his mama. He's cute too, but anyway. uh, (laughs) Here's what he wrote. Here's what Jonathan wrote. 25 years old in Boston. When I get pulled over, I make sure my license and my registration is on the dashboard in front of me and my two hands both on front of the wheel. Car completely off and me looking straight ahead calmly as possible before the officer approaches. Anyone who knows me, Jonathan writes, know I joke a lot and talk back a lot, but my parents taught me That when it comes to the officer or any other law enforcement, it's mouth closed until asked a question and my answer should be no sir, yes sir, thank you sir. I already know why I'm being pulled over and so does he. So why try to be a hero and state my rights? It just makes you look more suspicious and guilty in their eyes. Just relax and if you want to get them back, Go to the headquarters and file a complaint as soon as you are released. I know I might get some heat from this post, but as a black man who's been pulled over multiple times and has gotten away clean, it's because I kept my mouth closed, answered when asked a question. Not all police are bad. Not all are good. But as long as you remain cool, the situation will be cool. Fact. Thank you. That's my son. Now, if you're not African-American or Latino-American, the probabilities are you've never had to have a conversation with your kids Here are the steps to follow if the police pull you over. And the probability probably are that you've never had to wake up going through your mind if the police suddenly engage me because of mistaken identity, how do I de-escalate? 
But as an African-American man raising a young African-American male, this is my world. So you can begin to understand why when I would see uh, Mr. Alton with two police on him and then the shooting that takes place or why when I would see Mr. Castile who allegedly acknowledged that he had a gun, that he had paperwork for it and he's shot several times. I look at that through the lenses of my experiences. That's how I can get to probably a different perspective than you. Everybody shout fear. fear. Let's go back to the car. So here's the deal. It's cold, frigid snow. I see the car. I'm running full speed. Open the door, slam in. The white guy in the passenger side screams. And I scream. Well, what's going on? Fear. Everybody shout fear. fear. It's fear, it's fear, it's fear. This is a huge part of this notion of coveting. You see, coveting has several elements. First of all, there is a desire. There's a craving for something, right? Secondly, there's always a perspective that helps to shape the desire. And then thirdly, in many cases, there's what I call fear that drives it all. Fear. We screamed at each other out of fear. Well... When I think about it, now the, the covenant passage begins to make sense, right? You must not covet your neighbor's house or his wife or his male or female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to him. Well, well why would I want to covet it in the first place? Well, I'd want to cover it probably because I've got a perspective that what he has, if I have it, it'll add to my value. It'll make me as important as he is. It'll make me maybe more influential than he is. That, that, that if I have what he has, that, that somehow it's going to make me more special. And if I don't have what he has, I have the fear that somehow I'm less than. Everybody shout fear. fear is what's going on in these stories when I think about it through the lens of fear I get in how a white police officer in Baton Rouge Louisiana I grew up in Louisiana I, listen I know the cultural context that white police understands that African Americans many have the same view that I have so I can get how if he gets into a wrestling match with a large African American male who has a gun that this police officer is going to be thinking safety first. He's going to be thinking, this guy wants to kill me. I know he does. And I can see how he would shoot first. So at the end of the day, it was not just a white finger on a trigger that killed Mr. Alton. It was fear. Think about the sniper who killed these five innocent police officers who are doing nothing but their job helping to protect folk who are protesting. What, how, what is, what's going on here? Well, here's what's going on most likely. This guy has become deranged as he's looked at this long list starting with Michael Brown and being shot by a police officer who in this person's opinion, gets away. And then there's Tamira Rice, a 12-year-old who's shot and killed by a police officer. Nothing happens to the police officer. And then there's John Crawford, who's simply walking through a, a, a store like Walmart, happens to pick up a, a play gun, and he's shot dead. Nothing happens. Or Eric Garner, who's choked to death in New York because he picked up, selling illegal cigarettes, choked to death, public video, nothing happens. And so you can see how this drives this guy into this deranged place where he has, you know, he desires justice. His perspective is that because he and we are black, that the system will never deliver it. And so because he is afraid that justice will come from no place else, 
he retaliates. So it's not just a black finger that pulled the trigger and killed five police officers. It was fear. Fear did it. And part of the challenge that we have to ask ourselves is we have to be honest about the fear that we carry around the question of race. And I'm being vulnerable today about my, my own fear for myself and myself around the question of race. Fear. And yet one of the insights that comes out of this is that while it's okay to feel fear and to have fear, what Roosevelt said many years ago is still correct today. The only thing that we really have to fear is fear itself. Because fear can make us do some crazy things. And so now James' passage begins to make sense to us, right? He says, you desire, but you don't have so you kill. You desire to be safe, but you don't have, so you kill. You desire justice, but you don't have, so you kill. James words. Desire, broken perspective, and fear. All right, now let's go back to the car. The other thing that the this story about me running fast through the dark night, jumping in the car, he's screaming and I'm screaming, where it reveals there was fear in the car. But here's the other thing. There was the absence of relationship. You see, he didn't know me. And, and I kind of get this, guys. Listen, I, 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 I get this. Look, 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 look. look. Had he been John Hamachek, who I play tennis with every... Had John Hamachek been sitting in the passenger seat and he saw me running, who he knew, and jump into his car, he would have said, fancy seeing you here. <laughs> and I would have said, wow, fancy seeing you here. And he would have told me, I think you're in the wrong car. And then, you know, we would have laughed it off and I would have gotten off and, and he would have been thinking, wow, my pastor can't even get in his right car. He's like, wow. <laughs> We laughed about it. So I get it, right? If I was a white guy sitting in the car passing the seat, and it's dark, and it's 8.30, and it's frigid, and it's snow, and suddenly I look up, and I see this black man running as fast as he can towards my car, and he slams open the car, and he gets into the car, I would have said, ah! Because in the absence of relationship, all you have left is the stereotypical stuff that comes with race and whatever other stuff you got. The absence of relationship. Most of you don't know, but there is a member of this community, a partner of our congregation, who is the second cousin to Mr. Alton, who was killed in Baton Rouge. I called this young man on yesterday to provide pastoral care support. He said to me that it's one thing when you hear about it happening to other people. But it's something totally different when it happens in your, on your porch, in your living room, in your family. See, this is one of the things I think the African-American and Latino community, I think this is one thing we're going to share. Like, 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 like when we see this, we think about this could be our son, it could be our brother, it could be our uncle, it could be, this is what we're thinking about. And if you're not African-American, Latino, you don't see it that way. Really, it's, 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 it's sad, but it, it's, it's different. And what, and, what, and, what, and what this young man was trying to say to me, he said, you know, he says, it's radically different when it happens to you. And he said to me, he said, Pastor, he said, I was just Torn, I've been torn up for days and his, and his wife was in New York on business and she, and, and she was trying to help him so she went to the archives uh, I guess a couple of months ago I preached a sermon entitled I, I, don't, I, I don't get it and, and in that sermon I said you know I asked what do you do when you wake up in the dark and the answer was light a candle and, and, and so she sent that to him and he said you know pastor that helped me out 
But, 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 but I just got to ask you a question. You, you were in Roxbury and all this shooting and this killing. You've been knowing this for about 30 years. He said, you know, kind of like, does it make you angry? I said, yes. And then he went on and said, but, but, but how do you... And, and, and here's what he really wanted to say. He found a diplomat that said, but here's, he didn't say what... Here's what he was thinking. He was thinking, how do you see this happen again and again and again? And, 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 and somehow you don't hate white people. Well, that was the question he really wanted to answer. So he essentially said, how do you deal with it? I said, well, I have a good memory. He said, well, I said, no, I have a good memory. I said, I said, I remember all of the times when I see this happen, white on black crime, when I see this happen, I remember all of the time when God raised up white people to do good things in my life that helped me to become who I am. I, I, I have a good memory. I remember Miss Gahagan, a white special education teacher. I had an African-American one for the first grade and second grade. I was in the third grade special ed. She said, you know what? You, you, you are... Uh, you're gifted enough to be mainstream. And, and, and she fought with the principal and she fought with the school and she fought and she fought and she got me out and set me on a trajectory that ended me up here. That was a while. I remember that. I, I remember that. that was a big deal because my class, 1970, was the first integrated class in Cushada. That was police when we went to school initially for the very first time. Everything was through race, was, the, was around black and white racial issues. This white teacher fought for me. I remember that. I remember Mr. Borderline in high school, this thin, tall guy who spoke German uh, as well as I speak English, actually better than I speak English. And I was, a, I was a, man, I was a mess in, in, in ninth and 10th grade, and, and I was just a mess and just got into trouble, but he would pull me aside and talk to me and put me back in class and give me extra assignments and hold me over after school, speak into my life, tell me what he saw, just kept speaking, kept working with me, kept speaking, kept working with me, and he's responsible for, for the huge turnaround. He's one of the folk responsible for the huge turnaround that got me graduating and going to college. It was this, this tall, thin white man I remember Mr. Raritan in college who's the head of the philosophy department and said you know what you, you, you have a mind for philosophy you ought to be a philosophy major he pursued me an entire year finally I changed my major and I didn't know I didn't even know I was called to preach but I didn't know I, that would set the foundation for me to go to seminary and study theology so I said to this my this man I said I, I I, I, I just remember that not all white people are bad, not all black people are good, and I remember the folk that God raised to help redeem my life. And he said, you know what, I got it, Pastor. And then he told me a story about this, this, this how he played basketball, and, and he lived in this poor neighborhood, his parents were divorced. And this Italian couple essentially adopted him with no explanation. One day his team won the championship. The school couldn't afford to buy a trophy. And he won most valuable player. These, these parents, Italian parents, they bought him a trophy and said, you deserve to have it. He remember how when people would bring him home, he lived in this horrible project area and, and, and nobody would, they would stop three blocks away and he had to walk. But not, not this Italian family, they drove a red Cadillac. He said, and every, every day, every time they bring him home, they would drive straight and put him off right in front of his house. See, that's why 1 John 4 says that, that, you know, he says, talks about, perfect love that, that expels this notion of fear. It, what he's really talking about is loving relationships. You can substitute that with loving relationship uh, uh, because that expels all fear. And if we are afraid, it's because we're afraid of punishment, something bad happening to us. And this shows that we haven't really been gripped by the love of a, of a healthy relationship. That's really what the text is suggesting, right? And, and, but, but, but relationship in place will, call us, will cause us to take risk. This white couple risked for this black boy. And he said when he got to college, 
the, 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 the mom just kept sending him money every month just like he was her own channel. Finally, he said, enough, enough. He said, I can't repay you. Why are you doing this? And she said, I don't want you to repay me. I want you to pay it forward. Do what I'm doing for you for somebody else and don't let race be the difference. And then I said, here's what I said to him. I said, okay. I want you to take the white police officer shooting your second cousin, put it here. Then I want you to take this white Italian family who poured into your life for nine years and put them right beside and expand your perspective. And remember. Everybody shout relationships. relationships. It makes all the difference. It makes all the difference. I know. I know it makes all the difference because, because, because uh, two quick final stories. We had to move out of Boston. Some of you know this because crime factor almost uh, took my son. And because of my leadership role, it was a major front page story that we were moving out and he and I was on the front page. His picture was there. We moved to Woburn, a predominantly white town, and the first day the police engaged Jonathan. Jonathan came to tell me about it. My heart sank. I just knew it was going to be a horrible story. He said, no, no, Dad, it wasn't that. He said, here's what happened. He said, the police came up to me and they said, are you, are you Jonathan Hamilton? He said, yes. He said, we read about you in the paper about what happened, and we just want to welcome you to Woburn. And we just want you to know that if there's anything we can do to help you and your family, just let us know. You see, they had read about him. They saw him. There was this notion of recognition, the emerging, the beginning of relationship. And, 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 and they didn't just see a black boy in Woburn. You see, I'm convinced that that fellow who sniped and killed those police officers, he doesn't know. He didn't. He obviously didn't have police people in his family. He obviously didn't have police officers in his friendship circles because you can't have folk like in your friendship circle that you love and then go shoot police officers. Hey, see, it's the absence of relationship and the presence of fear. I, I, I bet, I'm convinced that the police officer who shot the, the guy in, in, in Minnesota, that, that had he just read in the paper about this guy and how he worked in the cafeteria, he mentored a number of kids and how Focus was talking about, he's never been in trouble, never been, he's just been a really good guy. Had he just been acquainted with that, I think the story in the car would have probably ended differently. It's the absence of relationships and the presence of fear it shapes us and so James right you desire but you have not so you kill here's the final story everybody shout relationships, relationships. they make the difference you see I used to like to fly from California into Dallas Fort Worth uh, and land there and rent a car and drive to Louisiana whenever I was going home. I tried to go home at least once a year. It's a particular time I was invited to do a, 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 ser a series of preaching services there. What was always great about that, I don't do it much anymore, but what was great about that was I'd rent a car and I always get Wi-Fi, I mean not Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, and and I'd hook up everything, my music and everything on my phone. And when you, when you escape the city, you're just floating up and down the highways. The music is blasting. And if I had hair, it would be blowing in the wind. <laughs> <laughs> so this one day I was, I was driving, you know, floating. Simpsons is moving, the music is grooving, and, and then I see in the windshield in the, in, the, in the rearview mirror, woo, woo, woo. I pull over. The white police officer gets out. I'm in Texas, I'm in the South. I'm thinking, this is not going to 
in well. <laughs> White police officer comes around to the door. He says, sir, you're driving a little fast. I was all, sorry, sir. Didn't quite intend to drive a little fast. Thank you. He said, um, who are you and where are you going? Not license and registration. But who are you and where are you going? And I'm shocked. So now is the time to pull the preacher's card. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just be honest. Come on, let's, let's take it. <laughs> I'm a pastor. <laughs> and I'm going to preach a series of revival services. He said, what? Really? He said, you're pastor. He said, I'm a Christian too. I said, really? Yes. He said, wait right here. Goes back to his car about 10 minutes later, he comes back. He says, Look, I'm gonna give you a warning. He says, Watch your speed. He said, um, So you go to the priest and church? I said, Yeah. He said, You think you would, could pray for me? I said, Sure. I said, Come on, get in the car. In Texas, a white police officer opens the door, gets in the car closes the door we join hands and for the next 15 minutes in Texas a black preacher and a white police officer pray together what happened in Boston <laughs> what happened was that white that story right there is the redemptive story for the negative stuff that happened in Boston and it happened in, in in San Francisco right because I could I could just say police are all this and that but no 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 what 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 made this encounter so differently what made it so unique what 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 was it why didn't he come with this guy I'm sure he pretended he didn't know who I was I'm black it's in the south I'm sure he had some fear because that's what our brokenness it creates race all that stuff sure he had some fear but he didn't allow his fear to define him or limit him he actually let faith have the last word he walks up to the car and says tell me a little bit about who you are relationship relationship you know here's how James ends this section James says you have not uh, he says you covet but you can't get what you what you want so there's, there's, all, there's all this fighting going on. And then he says, you have not because you have, because you ask not. You, you, you don't ask God. And when you do ask, you don't receive because you're asking with wrong motives. Because you're just trying to pay off your pleasures. This is what James is saying. Here, here's the point. It starts with the verse, you desire but you have not. So you kill. And what James would argue if he's here, arguing to his diverse congregation in minds, is this. At the end of the day, racism is like all the other isms. Behind the ism, it's just simply sin, y'all. And, and we all sinners, black and white and red and yellow. We all sinners. And at the end of the day, the philosopher doesn't have an answer for it. The sociologist doesn't have an answer for it. The politician doesn't have an answer for it. The preacher even doesn't have an answer. I tell you, the only answer comes from the God who has redemption in his hands. Come on now. And, 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 he's, and what James just says is look to God and God's got an answer for it. Well, what's God's answer? Here's God's answer. Here's how you can begin to reverse this notion of race in our culture. He says, love your neighbor as yourselves. I cannot love my neighbor until I get to know her, until I get to know him, until I get to know his story and her story. And my neighbor is white sometimes and Asian sometimes and Latino sometimes, right? Sometimes the neighbor is gay. Come on, sometimes the neighbor is straight. And yet the text argues, you know, love your neighbor as yourself. But it starts with me getting to know him. A one-on-one. 
Here's the unique piece about it. I bet you that that white police officer in Texas knew other African Americans. I bet you he had some friends in his church or in his job or that, 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 that. He, he was in relation. I wasn't the only African American he had encountered. But I, I bet you he knew and loved some. He knew their story. And because of that, it caused him to act redemptively towards me. That's the power that's in this room. And so I want to conclude here by, by giving you a charge. See, I think we are uniquely, if this was an all-black congregation, this would have to be a different message. If it was an all-white congregation, perhaps it's a different message. If it was all rich, all poor, all Republican, all Democrat, uh, we would have severe limitations. But God has miraculously put us together, black and white and Asian, Latino and rich and poor and Republican and Democrat, all those folk who are talking his and talking at each other. We're sitting on the pews with one another. And there is a, the, there is a I call it divine appointed opportunity to start having one-on-one with people of other races and ethnicities so here's my point yes pray for hope because our, our nation needs it yes work for hope because this is a perilous time yes Wait for hope and hope for hope. But the best thing I have to tell you is be the hope. Tell the person next to you, you be the hope. Tell them. Tell the person on the other side of you, no, no, you be the hope. And and it begins with what the, the grand reversal starts when we start building relationships with people who are not like us so we can learn how to love across differences. I just really want to challenge you when you exit from here that over the next several months, I want to challenge you. Identify 10 people who are not like you. Maybe in this congregation or in your small group or a combination of both or on your job who's a different race, different ethnicity and say, you know what, in the context of what's going on around race in this country, would you mind talking to me? Would you share with me your story and and, and would you allow me to share my story? You see, I just shared with you my story and there are some of you here, you have a different story. And you see these issues differently. You may have went to a school where, where, where black students picked on you. And, and when you saw the black man being shot, I mean, you, you just saw a straight trajectory from the kids who picked on you to there. Listen, that's your story. That's 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 legitimate story on your part. And, and I need to hear that story. And then you need to hear my story. And then we need to dialogue about it. And we don't have to agree on every detail. But if we can have some shared understanding, I can respect your perspective and you can respect mine. And hope happens right there. Right there. Now there's about a thousand of you that will have heard this by the year. This is the third gathering. There's over a thousand people today who've come to hear this message. There's about a thousand that's going to hear this on YouTube. People are going to send it and share it. Watch this. Here's what I'm trying to get you. If you would dare to take my challenge. Come on. Tell the person next to you. Say, take his challenge. Tell him. Just tell him. Now, now look behind you or in front of you. Tell somebody new. Say, take his challenge. Tell him. Come on. Come on. Come on. Come on. If you would dare to take my challenge and say that I'm going to find 10 people over the course of the next several months and I'm going to share stories with them and ask them to share stories with me, beginning with folk in this church, right? That if you would dare to do that, a thousand conversations, three months will become 10,000. And if those 10,000 will say, we'll pick up the challenge and we'll do 10 more over the next several months, those 10,000 will become 100,000 by the the beginning of next year. And if that 100,000 will say, you know what, we're going to take the challenge because we can be a part of the change in America and we're going to have conversations with 10 more people. Well, that 100,000 will become a million by the time we hit Easter. Come on. And then if they will take on 10 more conversations between Easter and Pentecost Sunday, a million will become 10 million conversations and it all can start today with you saying I'll take the challenge so now all you need to know is how to have the conversation Uh, come on somebody shout how How? come back next week 
Come back next week, bring your friends and family. I'm going to talk about how to, how to be champions of justice and how to execute this. But today, I just want you to sign up and say, count me in. I want to be the hope. Give God a hand, praise. Wow. Show me your connection card. Uh, we, we, we downsize. <laughs> uh, uh, the Lexus, what happened to Lexus? The story, what happened to Lexus? Well, I, when I got back in my car and uh, he drove around and, he, and I stopped him from my car. I said, you see, you see, I have a car just like yours. He said, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and we both went away laughing. Next step, show me your car. The next steps you can... You can uh, say, you know what, I need to say yes to Jesus. I didn't know that saying yes to Jesus could empower me to change the world. That if I stand up, Jesus can stand up in me. So maybe for you, that's, that's saying yes to Jesus or checking off. You're going to join a small group so you can have these conversations. My uh, majority of my small group are white men. And when I get back, I'm going to hear their perspective over the next several weeks. They're going to tell me their stories. Or maybe it's baptism. But what I really want you to look at is under the, my response to the message. See where it says my response to the message. Here's the challenge. You know, you don't have to be an elder or extra holy to do this one. In a real sense, you don't even have to be a Christian. You just have to be somebody tired of watching the news story day after day and looking at life going down the drain. You just have to be somebody who says, you know what, I want to do something. And if you're that person, all I want you to do is simply say, write, I will be the hope. Write that in a response card, get ready to turn it in, and then you get back here next week so we can equip you to go change the world. In Jesus' name, God bless you. Thank you so much for listening to this message. And while I was primarily focused on the people in this sanctuary, there's at least a thousand of you all over the country and parts of the world that's listening at this message. You heard this message uh, that I made share today. And uh, what I want to just do is challenge you to take up the challenge. To, over the course of the next three months, regardless of your religion or race or whatever, if you listen to the message, I want you to identify 10 people who are across, who are different from you ethnically and racially, and I, I want you to go and use the context of what's happening and say, would you consider sharing your story with me around race? And would you allow me to share my story with you? And as you do, I'm praying right now that God's Spirit will rest on you and that love will leap from heart to heart and soul to soul. And uh, I pray this in Jesus' name. God bless you. Thank you for listening.